All right, if you guys have your Bibles, um, open with me to Galatians chapter 4. And uh, we are going to be taking this entire chapter, which is a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, I feel like, yeah, it is a lot. So <laughs> open to, to there, and then um, once you're there, let me actually go ahead and, and pray for us as we jump into the Word. Uh, Father, thank you so much for um, just this time together that we can just fellowship, that we can uh, see each other and enjoy these relationships and sit under your preaching. Um, God, I pray that as we look into this passage, um, that you would convict us, you would show us just the, the glorious truth that you do love us, that uh, you have adopted us as your, as your children, and that there is a freedom, there is a assurance and security in that relationship. And so I do pray, especially for those of us here who uh, maybe are discouraged, who are fearful, who are not convinced of uh, just that adoption, that reality, Lord. I pray that you would encourage our hearts and you would make your love just very real to us. Um, and we would see it even now through the pages of Scripture. And so do that through your spirit, through the preaching of your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs> Let me start by asking you guys a question. Uh, it's a, a very basic question. But do you know that God loves you? Not just that he loves people, right, in general, not just kind of a you know, thing that you've heard in Sunday school. Do you know that he loves you specifically and personally? Right? Are you convinced of his love for you? When are the moments in which you feel like, oh, God must love me more? Or what are the moments where you feel, oh, God maybe doesn't love me as much? Russell Moore, he wrote a book um, called Adopted for Life. He, he wrote about his experience in bringing and <clears throat> adopting two boys from Russia. And he writes about his, his experience bringing them home. Uh, let me read it. It's a longer quote, so try to follow along. He says, When my wife Maria and I at long last received the call that the legal process was over, and we returned to Russia to, Russia to pick up our new sons, we found that our transition from orphanage to family was more difficult than we had supposed. We dressed the boys in outfits our parents had bought for them. We nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked out into the sunlight to the terror of the two boys. They'd never seen the sun. They'd never felt the wind. They never heard the sound of a car door slamming or the, had the sensation of being carried along at 100 miles per hour down a road. I noticed that they were shaking and they were reaching back to the orphanage in the distance. Uh, I whispered to Timothy, one of the, the boys he adopted, that place is a pit. If only you knew what's waiting for you, a home with a mommy and a daddy who love you, grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and McDonald's Happy Meals. But all they knew was the orphanage. It was filthy, but they had no other reference point. It was home. We knew the boys had acclimated to our home, <clears throat> that they trusted us when they stopped hiding food in their high chairs. They knew that there would be another meal coming, they wouldn't have to fight for the scraps, that this was the new normal. Now they are thoroughly Americanized, perhaps too much so, able to recognize the sound of a microwave ding from 40 yards away. I still remember, though, those little hands reaching for the orphanage. I want to see that orphanage one more time. When, when the boys are a little older, I plan to make the trip again with them because I want them to see and to feel where they came from. I'm sure their eyes will widen as we walk up those cracking steps into that horror movie-looking front door. 
and they'll probably go limp inside, just like I did, when they see all those abandoned toddlers peering out from the corners of the doors inside. Maybe they'll try to replay in their minds the circumstances of the nights they were born. I'm not sure what all they'll think of the orphanage, but I'm quite sure they won't call it home. Now that is a, a really powerful, uh, moving, kind of sobering excerpt, even just on, it, just, even just on its own. Uh, but I think it's a fitting one for our passage here in Galatians 4, because uh, one, well, it talks about adoption, which we're going to see in our passage. But two, it gives us a human picture of what happens when someone is not convinced of God's love for them. Right? If you are not sure of the Father's love for you, if you're not sure whether or not you are safe, whether or not this is home, then you will be on guard. You will try to earn that love and approval and favor somehow. If you are not sure, if you're not convinced of your Father's love for you, of God's love for you, you will rob yourself of all of the privileges that have been given to you. And I think that, that idea, that message, is not too far off from what we see here in Galatians 4. Uh, just to quickly remind you of what's going on in this letter, there were some false teachers, they were known as the Judaizers, who had infiltrated the church. They began to teach that if you wanted to be saved, if you really wanted to be acceptable uh, before God, if you really wanted to please him, then you, had, you not only had to become a Christian, right, by, by trusting in the gospel and in Jesus, but you also had to become a Jew. You had to observe the law, uh, follow rituals, you had to get circumcised. And so Paul writes this letter, Galatians, to correct their theology. And this is no, like, minor mistake. This is abandoning the gospel. Paul says that a Jesus plus something gospel, a Jesus plus Judaism or circumcision or whatever gospel is no gospel at all. Because to try to add or to contribute anything to Christ's finished work on the cross is to depart from the gospel entirely. Right? That the one and only true saving gospel is faith alone by grace alone in Christ alone. And to put it in terms of that opening illustration that I just read, the Galatians were a people who were not totally convinced of God's love for them in the gospel. That's why they felt like they had to earn it. Right? That's why they bought into this message of the Judaizers. They thought to themselves, well, maybe I do need to add good works. Maybe I do need to add circumcision and law-keeping. After all, that doesn't hurt, right? Like, it's a good thing. It's from God. Like, I should do this. Maybe he'll be more happy. And Paul's message here in chapter 4 is, no, it's, it's much more serious than just like adding another item to a spiritual list of things. Paul says, I want to make sure you know what you're doing. And specifically in chapter 4, he says, you're turning from freedom back to slavery. You're, you're going back to the orphanage even though it's no longer your home. You're rejecting the love of God in Christ for you. You're forcing yourself to earn it instead. Um, look at verses 8 to 9. I think I want you to listen for the before and after, right, in, in Paul's words. Verse 8, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more. I think what's interesting there is that Paul uses the language of turning back again. Because if you think about it, it's not like these uh, Galatian believers who were 
primarily Gentiles, it's not like they were tempted to go back to their paganism, right, where they came from. The Judaizers wanted them to become more Jewish. They wanted them to become more religious. And so if you imagine, like, if Jew and Gentile were two ends of the spectrum, this false gospel didn't, like, tell them, oh, don't, like, go back there. It wanted them to go to the other end, right, to become more Jewish, the opposite direction of who they once were. But Paul says, no, if you do that, you're going backwards. In other words, he, he lumps the false gods of paganism and the false gospel of Judaism together, and he says they're different versions of the same thing. Uh, think of the, the parable of the prodigal son, right? You guys remember the younger brother and the older brother, and, and that parable shows us that ultimately in the end, like both of these brothers are lost, right? It's two ways of being lost. They're both slavery to idols, which can't save. They're both a religion in which you operate out of fear and uncertainty, where you're trying to earn the approval and favor and love of God. And that idea, especially this like slavery and freedom motif, is all throughout this chapter. And so what is the cure for that? Right? What keeps us from going back to that slavery? I think it's what Paul says in verse 4 to 7. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I think those verses describe um, what is called the the doctrine of adoption. God's love for you as your father. Um, And in his book, Knowing God, J.A. Packer, he has a really good chapter on that topic. And so um, I encourage you guys to pick up that book and to read it. Um, But here's how Packer describes it. I think this is helpful. This is in your notes. He says, Justification is a forensic or a legal idea, conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. Adoption is a family idea, conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, generosity, or at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared by God the Father is greater. Um, elsewhere, he famously says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. Right? How much he makes of the thought of having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his, his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. And I think it is that important. Packer's right. And something that we see here in Galatians 4 is that Paul doesn't just remind us of what we've been saved from, which is slavery, right? but also what we've been saved to, which is freedom. And even so far in Galatians, most of our time we've been looking at getting justification right, right? Uh, justification by faith and not by works, getting that doctrine correct. But that's not where God leaves us, right? not just legally righteous before him, Even in our passage, verse 5, it says that God redeems us, right? He justifies us. Why? For what purpose? So that we might receive adoption as sons. 
To be justified by God is a great thing because it meets our fundamental need. It deals with our standing before God. But to be adopted by God is even greater and it is our highest privilege. I think Paul wants us to know there is great freedom that comes from being absolutely convinced of this reality, that God is our Father. He's adopted us as his, as his sons and daughters. And so even for yourself right now, let me ask you, when you think about your day-to-day, like actual, real, lived, experienced relationship with God, what is it like? Right, what are the words that come to mind that you would describe just your relationship with God uh, with? And what are the benefits of the gospel that you, that you know and that you taste and you get to enjoy on an everyday basis? If someone were to ask you, in what ways is your new life in Christ better? Right? Being a child of God, how is that better than it was before? What would you say? Like I said, I think this is a, a big uh, chunk of text. There's a lot in here, and so we're going to approach this a little bit different than usual. Um, I'll try to explain most of it so that you kind of at least have a big picture idea of what's going on and you understand what Paul is talking about. But I want to kind of just camp out and anchor us in this idea of the love of God as Father, our adoption, right, in verses 4 to 7. And I kind of want to approach it from that angle. But from there, I want to show us three ways that we can experience the benefits, okay, three ways we experience the freedom of that adopting love. And so the first one is this, knowing the love of God as Father frees us to draw near. <laughs> knowing the love of God as Father frees us to draw near. And this is in verses 1 to 7. So in these verses, Paul uses this everyday example of a child or an heir um, who hasn't received his future inheritance yet. In verse 1, Paul says, even though he's the owner of everything, so even though he has this massive inheritance coming to him, Um, He doesn't have access to it yet, right? Because the time hasn't come yet. And so in that way, Paul says he's functionally no different from a slave. Because, yeah, you don't have, you haven't experienced or enjoyed all of those privileges yet. But there's a point in time, and Paul calls that the date set by his father. There's a point in time, that day, when everything is given to that child and everything changes, right? All of those benefits, all of those privileges are received and actualized. And when that day comes, this child is no longer a slave, but a son. Right? A son in every sense of the word, an heir. And Paul's point is that that time has arrived with the arrival of Jesus Christ. Uh, verse 4, he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Everything has changed. The time of being under guardians and managers, and that should that language should make us think back to chapter 3 and the law, right, which was our guardian. Um, that time has passed. The date set by the Father is now here. And so knowing that, Paul's message to these Galatians is, like, why would you go back to how it was before? Why would you revert back to uh, as a child when you were no different when a, than a slave, right, when you didn't enjoy these privileges? In verse 3, wh- uh, why would you go back to when you were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And that phrase, um, elementary principles of the world, is kind of ambiguous, what Paul is referring to. It could be referring to something basic, like the ABCs, like elementary school. Um, Or I think more likely it could be talking about like literal elements, um, like periodic table elements. Uh, So like earth, fire, air, water. Um, That would have been kind of representative of uh, like demons, right, and pagan religion. That, that people worship these kinds of gods and they felt like they had, they had to appease these gods for prosperity. 
Um, but either way, I think the, the common thread that we're meant to see is, is distance. Right? Formerly, you only knew God as this impersonal taskmaster with a slave. But now you know him as a father and a son. Formerly, you lived in fear. You, you lived uh, with this constant need to feel like you had to appease these gods that you didn't even know. And now you can live securely in God's loving relationship with you as your father. I love how Paul puts it in verses 8 to 9. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So that there's that pagan uh, background, right? Their former pagan life. Verse 9 but now you have come to know God. And I like what Paul does here. He corrects himself and he says, or rather, be known by God. Our, our knowing God rises and falls depending on so many things. I mean, just like think about your past week, right? Maybe there were moments where you felt close to God. Like maybe when you're reading your Bible or you're at WCF or you're listening to worship music and you felt like, yeah, like I know God. I feel close to him, and, and yet there were probably many more moments where you felt far from him, maybe with busyness, right, or sin, or, or suffering, and you felt far from God. And I think like, just like any other relationship, that, that subjective experience of closeness is, is a real thing, right? That's why we confess sin, because we want to draw near to God. We want to restore that relationship. But the basis of our relationship, it doesn't rest on that. Right? The grounds of our relationship doesn't rest on our own feelings or on our knowing of him. The basis of our relationship with God, Paul says, is in his knowing us. And that word knowing is not just an intellectual knowing, like I know these facts, but it's a personal knowing. It's this taking initiative, a choosing, a moving towards. It's God deliberately setting his affection on you, that kind of knowing. And I want you to see, like, everything involved in this act of knowing, right? If you read in these verses, every member of the Trinity is involved with this. The Father's intent, the Father sending forth his Son. Um, Jesus Christ, the Son, redeeming, accomplishing, right? It says he's born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. And then you have the Spirit who's indwelling, who's applying, who's in our hearts reminding us of our status as a child of God. Um, on top of that, God's adopting love is not just like a one-time act that he does, but it's a relationship right, that he enfolds you into. And so at the beginning, you have redemption, you have adoption, but then we have the word heir too, right? and heir is future. Right? That's, that's what's coming for you. That's what you have to look forward to as a child of God. Um, in verse 6, Paul says that one of the things that the Spirit does for the adopted child of God is he places this cry in our hearts, um, Abba, Father. And that word Abba is a term of intimacy. Um, Jesus himself called God Abba in Mark 14, 36. And in that passage, he's actually praying in the garden before the crucifixion. And he says, Abba, Father, um, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. So it's this cry of vulnerability, right? In, in your moment of greatest need, you can cry, Abba, Father. It's, it communicates warmth and freedom, and affection, and nearness, and this, this confidence and assurance that God will hear you, and he welcomes you. Um, I like how Kim, uh, Tim Keller put it. He said, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child, right? Because they don't know any better. 
But we have that kind of access. I think that's a good picture of what it means to cry, Abba, Father. We can just go to him. We can draw near and go to him with anything. So Beacon, is that what your relationship with God the Father looks like? This assurance that you can draw near at any time. Not just when things are going well and you've been doing your quiet times and you've been fighting your sin, but also when life is hard, when you've just sinned, and your heart's not in it, and you have all these questions. You can go to God. You can draw near. Um, Second, knowing the love of God as Father frees us from self-reliance to trust. And for this, I'm actually going to jump ahead to verses 21 to 31, and then we'll come back later uh, to the middle part. But in these verses, Paul brings up this Old Testament story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. And you can read about this in Genesis 16 and and onwards in the next few chapters. Um, He quotes this story to make this point, and, and he summarizes that story in verses 23 and or 22 and 23. So it says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Um, If you guys are familiar with the Old Testament, or maybe you remember from uh, Sunday school, Bible lessons, you might be able to fill in some of the names that he describes in those couple verses. But in case you don't know, here is what happened. Okay, Um, When God made that important covenant with Abraham to bless him, one of the things that God promised Abraham was lots of descendants, right? lots of offspring. But a whole decade passes, 10 years passes after that promise, and nothing happens. Right? They, they still have no offspring. And on top of that, Abraham and his wife Sarah, they're, they're both getting old, and they're like, you know, is, has God forgotten? You know, like, what's going on? He promised us this. We don't have kids yet. And so they come up with a plan. And Sarah says, Abraham, why don't you actually try and conceive with my servant girl, whose name is Hagar? Uh, Hagar's, or Sarah says, you know what? She's, she's younger than I am. She's probably more fertile than I am. Uh, maybe, you know, you can, we can get pregnant and have that offspring through her. And, and that plan works. Hagar gets pregnant and bears Abraham a son, and that son is named Ishmael. And so if you look in verse 23 of our passage, um, Ishmael is the son of the slave who's Hagar. And it says that he's born according to the promise, or uh, I'm sorry, according to the flesh. And that word flesh is, I think it just means human effort, right? Our own works, um, natural human means. So that's Ishmael, that's, that's Hagar. And then uh, 14 years after Ishmael is born, and at this point Abraham's 100 years old. So this is like even more unlikely. God does give Sarah a child, just as he promised. And she bears a son, and this son is named Isaac. And, and this is the son that Paul says is born through promise. Um, that's the story. And now these ver- actually these verses 21 to 31 are considered probably the most difficult verses in all of Galatians. Um, and it's because of what Paul does with this story in verse 24. He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. And we're not going to get into like all of the weeds of what he means by that. Um, But I think all we need to understand is that Paul uses this real historical story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar to illustrate this bigger point. And his bigger point is this, that there are two different ways of being related to Abraham, so to speak. There are two different approaches to a relationship with God. Two different approaches to religion. There's flesh and then there's promise. There's works and faith. There's self-reliance and there's divine dependence. 
And if you keep reading in these verses 24 to 26, Paul brings up all of these kind of contrasting pairs of twos, right? Two covenants, two cities or or two Jerusalems, two sons, two mothers. And all of these kind of fall into two broad categories. On one side, you have um, Sarah, Isaac, the new covenant, freedom, all of these things characterized by faith and promise and dependence on God. And then on the other side, you have Hagar and Ishmael and the Old Covenant and Mount Sinai where uh, Israel received the law. And you have slavery and all of these things are categorized under human effort and self-reliance. And so two different approaches to religion, but just one that leads to blessing. And this is true of that story as well in Genesis. Right? Just one son receives that blessing. Uh, look at verse 30. Paul actually quotes Sarah's words to Abraham from Genesis 21.10. Sarah says to Abraham, Cast out that slave woman and her son, so Hagar and Ishmael. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. And the shocking punchline in this passage that Paul says to these Judaizers is, you know what, that's Hagar and Ishmael, that's you guys. And for these Judaizers who were just so extremely Jewish, they would have been so confident they were sons of Abraham. Right, that they were born of Isaac, that they were in on God's promise and blessing. And Paul says, no, if you're depending on the flesh, if you're just looking to the law and circumcision and ritual works, you're Ishmael. Um, I, I think one, some, one commentator summarized it well like this. He says, if you insist on being part of Abraham's family according to the flesh, so things like circumcision and the Old Testament law, remember this, Abraham indeed had a son according to the flesh of whom it is stated that he was not to share in the inheritance. And so hopefully you guys kind of see the parallels there. You guys understand the point that Paul is trying to make. Now he's talking about salvation in this context, right? Whether you're in or out of the family of God. But I think it's still true, and this is what I want to take from this point, is that like Hagar, we're often tempted to take things into our own hands. Like we want to control our own circumstances, when we are doubtful of God's promise, when we are doubtful of his love for us, we feel like we need to intervene. Like we, we feel like we need to help ourselves. So guys, what are those circumstances and situations for you? And what are the things that you have trouble trusting God with? And what are those moments that cause you to wonder, has, has God forgotten me? Right? Has this season of opportunity passed? If only I were more like this person. If only my life looked more like, like this or the life of this person. And can you imagine like Sarah kind of saying these things about Hagar? If only I could do this to help myself, then maybe things could actually happen. Maybe what God said would actually come to pass. How might things change if you viewed those same circumstances through the lens of God's fatherly love for you? Right? How would that change if you were convinced if you were assured that he has not forgotten you, that he is faithful to his word, that he knows what he's doing, that he has your best interest in mind as your father. As Pastor Kim always reminds us, God as father means that nothing passes into your life without first passing through the filter of God's love. I mean, Hebrews 12 says that even discipline, right, the, the hard and the painful parts of life is done out of God's fatherly concern for you. And he disciplines those whom he loves. 
And so instead of having to control everything as if we are left on our own, we can humbly and we can patiently point to the things in our lives and genuinely say, God, because you are my father, because you love me, I know that whatever passes into my life, this is you loving me. Because if there's any other way that would have been better for me, then you would have done it. Right? But God, I rest in your fatherly care for me. I know that you know better than I do. And so I can trust you. And one more thing I want us to see before we move on, and I think this is meant to be encouragement for us. If you look in verse 27 um, of our passage, he quotes from uh, the Old Testament, and this is actually a quote from Isaiah 54.1. And in that passage, Isaiah is talking about uh, Jerusalem. And at this point, Jerusalem is, is in exile. So look at verse 27. It says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, uh, Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And so the city is barren, and there's that connection with Sarah, right, that barrenness. The city of Jerusalem is barren because its people have been taken away. They've been taken into captive, uh, carried away to exile. And here in this prophecy, God says, one day God would establish this new Jerusalem, and this new Jerusalem is going to be filled with even more children than before. It's going to be even more children because it's not just going to be Jews, but also Gentiles. And the encouragement I think we're meant to take from that is that God works through even the most unexpected people and situations. And you think about it, this story shows us that God actually prefers or he chooses to work that way. And when God looks down at these two women, one is beautiful and fertile and young, Hagar and the other is barren and old Sarah, and he chooses to save the world. He chooses to fulfill his promise through who? Through the barren one, right? Through Sarah. And so can you find comfort and encouragement in that? That maybe the circumstances, the situations that you are so tempted to control, the ones you are so tempted to change and to manipulate in your own life, maybe they are the ones, precisely the ones that God wants to work and to use. Last point here, point number three. Knowing the love of God as Father frees us to love others rather than to need them. Knowing the love of God as Father frees us to love others rather than need them. And this is in verses 8 to 20. Um, this point might be a little bit harder to catch um, upon first reading. Um, and in this section, it's, it's kind of random, right? Like verses 8 to 20. It's like in the middle of Paul's argument, and he gets this, we get this section where he uh, gets personal, and he recounts his relationship with the Galatian believers. And so far in Galatians, we've read some pretty strong, some pretty direct words from Paul, um, some pretty harsh words uh, in this letter. And I think here, it's like we kind of get a peek underneath the hood, and we see the tender heart behind those words. We see why Paul is so passionate about the gospel, and even more so why he's so passionate about the people that he knew and loved. Uh, this section is like a, kind of a pastoral plea to the people that he ministered to, that he shepherded. And specifically in these verses, he mentions how the Galatians first received him when he came and he preached the gospel to them for the first time. Um, in verse 13, he talks about how when he came to them, he was dealing with some sort of uh, bodily ailment. Okay, so he had some sort of health issue. We're not exactly what it, sure what it was, but it rendered him weak and unimpressive. And he even says it was somewhat burdensome to the Galatians. 
And yet, knowing all of that, like that, even though that was his condition, how did they receive him? Verse 14. Though my condition was a trial to you, so even though it was a burden to you, right, even though it was an inconvenience, you had to deal with it, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God in, as Christ Jesus. In fact, in the very next verse, Paul says that they gladly would have gouged out their own eyes for him if they, he needed it. And so because of that verse, some people think maybe he had like a health issue with his eyes and the Galatians were like literally willing to give him uh, their own eyes. But why were they so willing to do that? Why, why, were the, why did they receive Paul so warmly despite his weakness? Well, it was because the gospel had taken root in their hearts. It was a testimony to the spirit who had been working in them. And now, as Paul watches right, the current situation, these same Galatians, they're in danger of being led astray by these Judaizers, these false teachers. He's, he thinks back to that, and he's like, what happened? You know, uh, verse 15, what has become of your blessedness? Right? What happened to that work of the Holy Spirit that he did in your hearts in which you received me so warmly? Uh, verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Verse 20, I am perplexed about you. Like, what changed? It's so different. Oh, I think we get a clue of what happened in verse 17. He says, they, he's talking about the Judaizers, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. And so why were the Galatians so quick to turn to the Judaizers and be led by, astray by them and follow them? Well, he says, the false gospel of these Judaizers tickled the Galatian believers' ears. It led them astray because it made much of them. It made them feel good about themselves. It catered to their pride. The true gospel message absolutely crushes pride. Right? I think that's why we are um, ashamed or embarrassed to share it with our friends. I mean, think about what it says about you. You are worse than you think you are. Uh, you are a sinner who is at odds with God. You are unable to save yourself apart from the grace of Christ. And so can you see how a false, kind of distorted gospel, a man-centered gospel might sound more appealing? The Judaizers told them, you know what? You can earn God's approval if you just do this. If you just don't do this, you can, God will be more happy with you. You know, if you just get circumcised, you can be an insider. You will no longer be just like, you know, that, those outsiders. You can become just like us. Um, it kind of reminds me of Paul's uh, kind of list of spiritual accolades in Philippians 3, and he calls them reasons for confidence in the flesh. And he lists all of these things about him being so Jewish, all of these advantages that he had on others, all of these things he, he thought that he could point to and say, you know what, this is why God justified me. This is why God approves of me, and I can stand acceptable before him. Paul says they are making much of you, right? They're, they're telling you what you want to hear, but they have ill motives. They are puffing you up. Why? So that they can shut you out. So they're, they're not doing it for your good, but they're doing it for theirs, that you would make much of them, so that, so that they would uh, seek after you, so they would look up to you uh, and put you up on a pedestal and depend on you. And I think we kind of get this picture going on, don't we? When you think of the word uh, flattery, it doesn't really have a positive connotation, right? Because even though in the act of flattery, you might be doing something nice, right? Or you might be saying something nice about someone else. Flattery refers to that ulterior motive, right? Why you're doing it. 
You're doing it because you hope that uh, secretly it'll come back to reflect on yourself in a good way. Right? That's why you're doing it. And I think that's what's going on here with the Judaizers and these Galatian believers. But as you may have, as you may have experienced, it's this like vicious cycle, right? When you are just trying to flatter, when you just live for the acceptance of other people, you are enslaved. Because on one hand, you're like, okay, I need you to make much of me with your affirmation, your praises, your likes, your subscribes. Right? I need you to agree with me, look up to me, and yet this, at the same time, I need to maintain my advantages. I need to push you down. I need to uh, maintain my superiority. Like the Judaizers, they say, I need you to shut you out right, in order to convince myself that I'm better. I think the picture of Paul's ministry here is such a contrast to that. An assurance of the love of God as Father frees us to love others and seek their good rather than need and use others to seek our own good. We can live to love and not to be loved. And how do we see this in Paul's example? Well, he is free to give himself entirely to the Galatians, even at great cost to himself. If you look in verse 12, he says, Brothers, um, I entreat you, become as I am. So he's talking about uh, become as someone who doesn't need to live under the law. That's what I did. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Right? He says he was flexible for the sake of the gospel. He was uncompromising on the majors, right, on the gospel purity, but he was willing to give up his preferences, his comforts for the sake of ministry. He was willing to become as the Galatians were in order to love them and to minister to them. Uh, verse 16, he says, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Uh, verse 19, he says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So according to the Galatians' thinking, uh, they, they equated being a friend meant that they told you things you wanted to hear. And being an enemy meant telling them, they didn't, uh, telling them things they didn't want to hear. Right? And so Paul says, I'm telling you guys what you need to hear, maybe not what you want to hear. You think I'm an enemy now? Paul says, I'm telling you the truth because I love you. And in fact, in verse 19, he uses um, kind of a risky illustration for any man to use. Um, he says his desire for the Galatians to grow in Christ-likeness is akin to the anguish of childbirth. Right? He, he compares it to actually the pains of labor. Um, Sometimes when, I sit, when I'm sick or when I stub my toe or like something small like that and I'm like all dramatic about it and like how much it hurts, Bree will just look at me and she'll just like shake her head <laughs> and she'll just remind me that I've never given birth before. Uh, and so obviously like Paul has never experienced the actual anguish of childbirth, right? But I think we can like understand what he's getting at. Just that anguish, that, that pain that he is willing to endure for the sake of the Galatians. Is it doesn't matter what you think about me. I want you to know that this is how much I long for you. This is why I'm going through the trouble of speaking these hard words to you. This is how much I'm willing to endure for your benefit that Christ would be formed in you. And maybe you guys have been in a situation where like, you felt that way before. Right? Maybe for a family member or a close friend, um, someone who is just like, on the verge of uh, just doing something like, unwise or doing something harmful or heartbreaking, and you're just like, like please, just listen to me. Right? Like, I'm, I'm telling you this for your own good because I care about you. And that's what Paul is like with these Galatians. So Beacon, is that true 
of our relationships? And do we have people in our lives where our heart looks like that? Do our friends and our brothers and sisters in Christ know that that is our great desire for them, that, they would be, that Christ would be formed in them? Right? Are we so secure in the love of God our Father that we can love in that way, even at cost to ourselves? The gospel and knowing the love of God frees us to give ourselves to others like that. And rather than seeking to be made much of, I can seek your good. I can seek to make much of Christ in you. Right? I can uh, endure and, and minister that Christ might be formed in you. Let me close with this. I want to go back to that question that I asked you earlier. What are the benefits of the gospel and God's adopting love that you experience on an everyday basis? In other words, what, like, what difference does this actually make in, in everyday real life? And I think it's easy to just walk away from a sermon uh, and just think, like, okay, like, I need to do this. I need to do that. Right? Like, I just need to do this better. I need to do this, that better. But at least from our passage, that's not how Paul puts it, right? He says you're free. You are loved by God the Father, and so live out of that freedom. And we'll talk more about that freedom when we get to Galatians 5. He says, live out of that reality that you have been adopted by God as Father. And so, so even this week, can I encourage you, just take like one truth. Maybe go to a specific passage in Scripture, uh, one that talks about that adopting love. Take one truth and, and even write it out if you need to. Because I know the love of God as Father, I am free to, what, fill in the blank. And just meditate on that this week. Right? Because I know God as Father, I can draw near even when I don't feel like it. Because I know God as Father, I can trust and not control, have to control my circumstances. I don't have to rely on myself. Because I know God as Father, I can love and not need, even at cost of self. Let's pray. God, we thank you for that um, amazing truth that you have adopted us as your children. And that, that is a place where we can rest, where we can find assurance, um, where we can trust you, uh, where we can enjoy freedom, and a place where we can love others well. And so I do pray that you would make this doctrine uh, more real to us, not just knowledge in our heads, but uh, that it would warm our hearts. It would change the way that we live and that we love others. So thank you again for this time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.